Welcome everyone. Um, it's great to see so many of you on, um, on a very nice afternoon, albeit a bit cold. Um, welcome to OTGR seminar series. It's great to see that our audience is expanding and I see some people that I haven't seen before here in our, um, in our audience, so welcome. Oxford Transitional Justice Research started more than 10 years ago and it's now one of the largest interdisciplinary networks dealing with issues related to transitional justice broadly defined. And I always say that we pride ourselves in our interdisciplinarity because we bring lawyers, political scientists, sociologists, anthropologists, um, and many other people from different uh, disciplinary backgrounds to talk about their research. We are very happy to have um, Elena Putti with us here today. It's a homecoming for Elena because she's been involved with OTJR much longer than me, actually. So when I arrived to Oxford, she was one of the people who welcomed me on the committee very warmly. So I'm very happy to, to uh, pay back the, um, the favor, so to speak, to Elena to uh, share her exciting research with all of you. I'm not going to take more time because um, I'm sure it's a very <coughs> exciting presentation lies ahead. Just a couple of words for those of you who don't know Elena. She's based here in Oxford at the Center for Social Legal Studies, completing her doctorate. And um, in this particular presentation, she's going to emphasize on the fruits of nine months <laughs> ethnographic work. Um, 18 or, overall, but nine in this particular context. In this particular case. context, in yeah. Colombia, yeah. focusing on uh, the perspectives and the takes on um, an underrepresented group with regard to the Colombian peace process, yeah. that is, youth and self-marginalized youth, from what I understand. Yeah. And I guess yeah. uh, the presentation is going to answer this. So um, Elena is going to present for about 40 to 50 minutes. This session is recorded. And then in the end, we have plenty of time for quite informal Q&A. So um, we are very happy to have so many of you here. So please come up with great questions. And I'm sure that um, we're going to have a lively discussion afterwards. So please join me in welcoming Elena. <laughs> coming it's a, it's a delight to be here and thanks Eva for the introduction I'm completing my PhD here at the Center for Social Legal Studies with some colleagues here that I'm happy to see and um, but I I mean the center is an interdisciplinary center but I very much take an anthropological approach um, I did um, 18 months of field work overall in in Colombia between 2015 and 2016 and my thesis broadly looks at uh, trajectories of adolescents and youth into organized crime. Um, but um, for, for the purposes of this presentation, I focus on a specific sort of part of my thesis, which really deals with their ideas and conceptions around um, peace. But as it was said, um, it's really also really nice to be here because I've been involved with OTJR from the beginning, not only as a group, but also really with transitional justice as a sort of initial theory that made me interested in Colombia at all. So I had no, I had no connection to Colombia now, obviously, <laughs> it's very much part of me. But, uh, you know, before I set foot in Colombia ever, I chose it as a country to study because it was so much in the news that was 2014, 2015, um, for the latest developments in the, what then were the negotiations between um, the government, the Santos government and the, the FARC guerrilla. And uh, Colombia was all over the news for sort of the setting up, so th there were initial talks of a truth commission, there were um, sort of talks of an alternative justice mechanism that the country could use, 
And, and in general, there was a lot of international attention to these negotiations, which um, at the time, with a lot of bad news going on all around the world, seemed to be the only thing that was really going forward. It was really, you know, uh, kind of being a positive development. Um, and so this led me to choose Colombia in the first place because you could see it was a country that was changing or there was a lot of talk of change and I think for an anthropologist it's really interesting to be there as things happen and see you know how they look from the ground basically. Um, so obviously before I went there ever I knew very little about Colombia and, and I, I learned a lot from my Colombian colleagues here at Oxford um, about it, but uh, I was reading the news a lot as well, and, and there was this, this sort of celebratory portrayal of, of the country at the time, and of, uh, you know, the clear landmark that these peace negotiations were representing, uh, sort of marking a very clear cut transition between a violent past and a, and a peaceful present. Of course, um, as I learned when I went there, but also as things started to become clearer like, later on, the picture is much more complex. Um, the, the problem of violence in Colombia is much, much broader than the conflict with the FARC. Uh, there are obviously a lot of issues related to, uh, well, uh, traditionally, of course, Colombia, uh, so for those of you who don't know it, and I know there are many <laughs> Colombians and Colombian audience, but for those of you who don't know it, has seen a, a traditional opposition between paramilitaries, guerrillas, and the government. Um, but these so-called traditional conflict intersects with other more criminal dynamics related to the drug trade, the drug cartels, the, uh, very complex histories of war between the drug cartels and the states, and also of collusion between drug cartels and the states, which I won't go into here, um, as well as other issues related to violence, you know, urban gangs that exist in almost any country <coughs> where there is poverty and marginality and that here intersect with these broader dynamics. Uh, and issues of domestic violence and violence in interpersonal relationships in schools, etc. So, so violence is this kind of uh, recurring theme in Colombia. It always struck me to to see when I went there that there was this this academic discipline, really, la, la violentología, so the violentologos. So, uh, it's really a thing, you know, the study of violence because it's such a defining character of how at least Colombia's history is talked about um, very often. Um, but yeah, of course, as I got there, um, th there has been a lot of talk of change, but obviously things looked more complex. Uh, this peace agreement was achieved when I was in the country, uh, and um, basically was put to a referendum. Uh, it was rejected by a very thin majority, but I always care to say with a very high sort of abstention rate. Uh, and so it, it was a very contested, contested and, and politicized issue. And, Still, the, the peace agreement was pushed ahead, um, but there are a lot of issues in the implementation. The disarmament has kind of gone right. A few transitional justice institutions have been set up, but at the same, at the same time, some of the more transformative elements of the agreement um, are encountering serious difficulties, such as the, the land reform um, or other other reforms that I can talk more about later. Um, and the election of the new government a few months ago um, President Duque, who uh, was sort of on the side of the main opponent of the peace agreement, ex-president Uribe, marked uh, sort of a clear, you know, self-distancing of a lot of the Colombian population from these developments. So, 
as I said, it's a, it's a rather nuanced picture. I'm not meaning to say Colombia is the poster child of transitional justice, never, that it's all of a failure. And it's a kind of broad and complex dynamic a lot of you know a lot about. And I think we can sort of cover and go more in depth into these debates if you wish in the Q&A. But I wanted to give you this context because what I'm trying to do in the next sort of 30 minutes or so is to discuss how these developments are seen by a particular segment of the population, which is young people. I went there with this interest in young people, um, really stemming from a sort of development in the transitional justice field that uh, internationally really, not only in Colombia, that promotes the better inclusion of young people and children in traditional justice and peace building more broadly. Um, sort of under the understanding that, first of all, it's their right to be included and that they are traditionally a marginalized population, but also that if you engage young people you know, actively in a transitional process, there is much more likelihood that the peace will be stable. Um, but at the same time, not only in Colombia, but really across the Americas and, and worldwide, Violence is perpetrated by people who are young and normally male. Uh, the vast majority of perpetrators of violence are young. And so I was kind of puzzled about these competing framings on young people, peace and violence. And I wanted to try and understand that better. Um, the idea that young people are kind of for peace and support peace was very evident in the way, um, sort of in framings around youths after the agreement was rejected. So there was this kind of big you know, um, shock for the country, oh my God, the peace agreement that has so much international support is rejected by the majority, but a lot of young people in the cities, in Bogota, and to some extent in Medellin as well, and in Cali, um, went to the street and protested. And um, there was a very much this narrative of jóvenes por la paz, young people for peace. Um, uh, we, this is Plaza Bolívar, which is the main and uh, Square of Bogota, packed with mostly young students, activists. Um, and so there was very much this idea that young people were supporting peace and for peace. Um, but during those days, so I was watching all the news on the internet, but I was in, in Antioquia doing my field work in this little town, like medium-sized town called San Carlos, um, which is very close to Medellin, um, is, has as well a complicated history I won't go into now, um, but has a really close ties sort of to Medellin and to the criminal di dynamics related to the criminal gangs that today exist in the city. And I had been in this town for a while, and as a side project to my PhD, which was, as I said, was really centered on trying to understand these criminal dynamics and how adolescents got involved in that, um, I was also doing um, a documentary. I, I wanted to experiment with visual methods, and I thought it would be nice you know, because Colombia is so much in the news these days to kind of try and capture how young people in town, all sorts of young people, um, see these developments. And I want to show you a little fragment, like five minutes or so, of this documentary. Um, and the, the methodology of the documentary itself is something we can go more into in depth in the Q&A. It was a voluntary project which try to be as participatory as possible. But what you will see is that it really captures the ideas and the opinions of very, very different types of kids, all about the same age, from 12 to 19, uh, sort of, so adolescents. Um, so I'll try to show you a fragment. I hope, I hope it works. And then take it from there. Mm -hmm. So this is the fragment of the documentary. So the documentary was more generally about sort of peace and how they would see peace more broadly. This is the fragment that talks about 
peace in, in politics, sort of the peace negotiations. And, and these were mo the days uh, just after the, the peace agreement was, uh, was rejected, basically, so after the, the, the plebiscite. Or, I mean, actually, in between, because some was shot before and some were shot after, so as you will see. But let's see if it works. No. So before we were hearing the audio. Do you know? <laughs> Technology is failing us today. Here? If you go back to the, to the previous page, I think you would see that the. El proceso de paz es un gran cambio en Colombia porque llevan más de medio siglo en esa guerra contra las FARC y si es bueno que terminen ya con esa guerra. La guerra es una parte muy, muy fundamental de la guerra. Entonces, si se acaba la, la guerra, se acaba una, una muy buena parte de la guerra. A mí me parece que la paz en el país es alcanzable. Pues porque aunque aún hay mucha tasa de violencia, mucha tasa de, de grupos eh, de barrio, pues se están cambiando muchas las cosas, las cartas se están volteando. Yo quiero ser del, del ejército, eh, porque quiero un país, un país en paz, entonces nos quiero aportar algo. Me gustaría meterme al ejército porque a mí no me gustaría que, que hubiera paz porque 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 santo el presidente de colombia le está entregando todo todo el país a la guerrilla y a mí de eso no, no me puse de acuerdo porque porque la guerrilla mató a mi padre para mí la paz es, es la liberación del de dolor, es encontrarse a sí mismo, es sentir que, que estás vivo nuevamente, es perdonar. En mi corazón todavía se venganza, desde que esa gente mató a mi familia, antes yo quiero hacer lo mismo con ellos. Es que suene un poco como violento, pero... He escuchado que hay un poco de paz y no la hay. Está aumentando la guerra porque estamos generándola nosotros mismos. Porque si antes hay paz, sí, allá en La Habana, o que se firmó un contrato por medio de simples hojas, que dejaron las armas, pero no todos. Así como un guerrillero puede dejar un arma, un muchacho pudo coger otra. Y desde chiquitico los incitan a eso, pues para nunca Porque, ¿cómo te digo? La paz uno mismo le encuentra, ¿no es cierto? Pero lo que está haciendo es que no es paz. Esa paz que a mí me gobierna y por lo menos de Para mí que la paz 
enam dan lapas So just to run through a few of those that were presented, uh, Roger was saying peace is possible and I believe in it. Alani is really clear to say that peace is different from the peace process. Um, Catherine was talking about peace as inner peace and inner tranquility and more spiritual notions of peace. Peace as harmony within the family for Estefania. Peace as kind of being quiet and relaxed. <laughs> um, uh, peace, peace doesn't matter for Santiago. and. Finally, peace doesn't exist for, for Jose. So obviously, I mean, the, this is just a snapshot, right? And I don't pretend that with a documentary or a video you could ever capture something as complex as, as notions of peace. But the main point I want to make here is that, and I think it's important for traditional justice practice and, and scholarship, youth are not all the same, just as any other categories of what we might label vulnerable or marginalized groups. So, so I think all too often in you know humanitarian development practice, transitional justice 
practice as well as scholarships. We talk about these marginal groups as if they spoke with one voice, and especially with children, I feel there is often this sort of rhetoric or, of representing youth voices or let young people speak for themselves, but then they're talked about in very homogenous terms. And I think the interesting question is then to ask, well, these people are represented in very homogenous terms, which people are selected and which narratives prevail, right? We've seen young people think very differently, but very often those, um, you know, the kids with the cap, the kids that are most alienated and most distant from institutional narratives are sort of silenced because they are not in line very much with the messages we would want to promote in terms of transitional justice, peace, reconciliation. Um, so bottom line here is we need to listen to these kids. And, and these type of kids, uh, um, you know, not to typify them and to say they are two completely different groups, but these type of kids were the kids I was working uh, with most. And the main point I want to make here is that we have to listen to those, uh, you know, narratives that are not really in line with transitional justice discourses if we are really to include young people because these young people are the people who end up joining uh, criminal groups that today pose a threat to Colombia's peace and these are the young people that feel most excluded and that are most marginalized uh, very often more than others but so um, for the rest of this presentation I will focus on those narratives so I'm absolutely not claiming that all young people think as the people I'm talking about now these are the people I work with and they have specific livelihoods and specific histories. My claim is that it is important to include these particular narratives. So how do these lives look like? Who are these kids? Right? Um, for those who speak Spanish, Colombian Spanish, they often talked of themselves and were talked about as gamines kids on the street, kids who hang out all the time. They do not necessarily live in the street. Many of them have a family, although very often it's a very fragmented one, often with one uh, lone parent, often that's the mother, the father has either abandoned the family or been killed. Um, these particular kids were often born in Medellin, um, in peripheral neighborhoods, and they, um, because their families had often been displaced for the violence to the cities, they were coming from towns, and then in usually early years of adolescence, their family migrate back to the surroundings uh, thanks to some return programs. And especially in this particular town, there was a very strong sort of institutional support for return. And so these kids migrate back with what remains of their families, usually, again, their mothers. Um, but they bring with them a sort of urban you know, outlook, consumption practices, but also music based uh, language, you know, um, which contributes to them being very kind of stigmatized and looked bad at in the very conservative town that San Carlos is in the very conservative region of Antioquia. Um, and these kids uh, often get co opted, but also really voluntarily join um, the micro traffic or um, yeah, drug dealing sort of local networks that exist in town and in many other towns like this. Um, they do try to go to school, drop in and out. Uh, most of the ones I was uh, hanging out with uh, basically had given, given up on school, not because they didn't want it, but because they really felt they weren't really accepted. They, their behavior was often very unruly, which resulted in them being expelled from school. And then they kind of never went back because they didn't feel very accepted. Um, and as I said, they, they work for these uh, um, drug, local drug dealing networks often the, the sort of bottom line type of uh, job is selling drugs and for which they are often paid in kind, so with more drugs that they can either sell for 
themselves or consume. So they often develop a drug addiction as well. Um, and some, some of them climb the criminal ladder and sort of become neighborhood watchers or um, they charge protection money. Some of them move back to the city. Their lives are also very geographically mobile. So um, when I went back to the field a year later, I found only about half of them. The others were kind of had gone and I wasn't sure where. Um, and, and I think a defining trait of these young kids is that they feel very marginalized. As I said before, people often talk uh, about them in very negative and then sort of stigmatizing terms, and they know that, and they feel that, and they are very, very frustrated by it. Um, as we've seen, thanks to the three, obviously I hanged out with many more than, sorry, than these than this three kids. Um, but those three agreed to sort of, they, they were kind of, interested in this documentary project and so they agreed to participate and it's I think nice to kind of see their own voices and their claims coming from their own voices rather than me reporting them as I, as I will do in the next um, part of the presentation but I think we've seen that there you know everyone has kind of critical around notions of peace because the issue is so politicized today in Colombia but their narratives around peace I think are underscored by, that, by, a, by a much more profound sort of disbelief. So what I call in my, you know, kind of working concept that I'm using is an existential disbelief in peace. The lack of trust that peace can ever exist as a concept, as an idea. Not only that the peace process is flawed or that the politics, you know, of it is, is corrupt, but that really peace can't exist. And I think they believe that for at least three reasons, so three things that characterize their lives that make them feel that way. And the first is that peace for them doesn't exist in the sort of criminal underworld that constitutes their daily experience. Um, as one of them said, this town looks very peaceful today, right? But if you look closer, it's really not. Quite on the contrary, this town is getting worse and worse every day. Um, after the agreement, so he refers to the peace agreement, there is only going to be more war, but kind of more hidden. The war doesn't end. The paramilitaries, the gangsters remain. If the war ends, then what? That doesn't end, because it's like a chain. If they kill one, the other continues. The only way for the war to end is that they make lots of drugs and give it around for free. The world is fueled by drugs and extortion. And again, war has always existed. It's never going to end, because for some, war is their bread. They eat from them. They pay their rent. They feed their families. So I think what this quotes go to show is the fact that these kids see in their very everyday life and interactions how much, you know, the, the drugs business and the drugs chain which fuels so much violence is not going to stop, right? So um, obviously, as many of you may know, rates of violence and homicide rates in Colombia in the past 10 years or so have dropped massively. Um, but these kids see the more invisible forms of violence that sustain this drug business, which is, you know, the, I, I think the drug uh, sort of business and the organizations that deliver it, uh, the, the landscape has changed massively, and they're also changing strategies, and they are sort of understanding that it's not very wise and it doesn't help their business to be very, sort of produce a lot of bad people and then raise international concern. But still, at the very micro level, this business works on threats, on selective assassinations, many victims of which are kids like these who, um, you know, take up some drugs and don't give it back, don't give back the money. So they see this kind of small, granular violence, almost invisible violence. It affects their lives every day. And so they say, this is not stopping, you know? And so 
the world, you know, peace doesn't exist, at least in my world, not in my world. The um, second reason why I think these kids have such a profound sort of existential disbelief in peace is a slightly more, a less direct, more nuanced argument, which has to do, I think, with their visions of the future. So, in general terms, and in Colombia, I think certainly the notion of peace is very much tied up with this idea of, the, of hope for the future, right? Of a hope for a change, for you know something better to come. Um, and the thing is that, and it was hard to me to understand this and, and to grapple with it, but these kids are really not so used to thinking about the future. Um, it was quite striking in my interaction with them, and also coming from a lot of you know research on young people in general, which often deals with aspirations and dreams and hopes, um, to see how these kids really live in the present. And, and it was quite striking to compare them to my own notion of, of adolescence, you know, the, how, how I grew up and a lot of people around me grew up really prompted to think sometimes way too much in advance, you know, and to have a plan and to have a perspective and to have a dream. Um, we're really encouraged to dream and these kids are not encouraged to dream. Um, and their lives are very tied up with what happens, you know, in everyday life. Still, I asked one of them, about the future ones, this was one of my closest informants, and I read from my chapter. Um, what do you think about the future, I asked. The future, he whispers, as his eyes become two slits. After a short pause in which he seems to be trying to grasp something too far from him, he says, well, the other day I was talking to a mate of mine, and you know what he said? He said that in the future we would all be ruled by aliens. Aliens that will force us to work and will beat us hard. He laughs. I was wondering about your future, I said. How do you imagine yourself in 10 years? My future, he repeats as he turns to a confused lost case. I don't know. You can never know. You can try to imagine the future, but in fact, you never know what is going to come. In fact, you never know if you are going to get there at all. 10 years is a very long time. I could very well be dead or something. I can be talking to you now, but who knows what will become of me tomorrow. So, it was quite, you know, I shouldn't read this as a very kind of tragic quote. It was quite lighthearted as he said these things, but it just goes to show this is a kind of normal way of thinking about your life. And um, I go on and I ask him, don't you have dream? dreams? He looks at me ironically. Dreams? What dreams? Dreams are stupid. I already know my dreams are not going to be achieved. There isn't any future around here, Elena. The day we'll all cease to exist is already coming. Um, so what future is left to you? Nothing. So why study? What do you gain with it? Nothing. If you die, you can't take anything with you, neither your money, nor your education, not even your clothes. Nothing, nothing at all. So it's not worth it, right? Why should I do, any why should I do anything for my future if I'm going to die in any case? There is no use in imagining the future. For me, it's better for, to wait for it to come and wait and see what happens. But, but if, well, if perhaps maybe, if perhaps maybe I find myself doing something in 10 years' time, I would like to be a singer. I have written some rap songs, you know. But I'm not good at that, so let's leave those stu stupid things aside. So, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I quite like Gerson's quote because it shows at the same time, he's saying quite profound things about 
you know, the precariousness of daily lives and how uncertain these kids feel. And at the same time, he jokes about it, right? He sort of dismisses this talk. As, and he talks about this in a rather light tone, which is really the tone in which many conversations with these youths happened, although they were telling me what, for me, were quite harsh things. Um, but he goes to show that the precariousness of, of life in his underworld, at least, leaves no space to think about tomorrow. That's, it's not used, it's not useful. So these kids often, you know, they really live immersed in the present. They um, don't really make plans that are more than a couple of hours ahead at best. Um, so they're not very reliable. You can imagine the difficulty of doing good work with these people. Um, they do, don't plan days ahead. And, and what we see at the last, in the last bit of the quote that I read out to you, you know, at some point, um, the kid that I called Gerson, he, he allows himself to, to dream a bit, right? And he says, oh, perhaps if I, if I were a singer. But then he kind of very quickly dismisses it, and as if you know, he had allowed himself to go in a different world uh, that I think wasn't, he recognized not to be, to be his. And so he, he comes back to a much more precarious, but also much more tangible presence. This, this is what I have to hang out to, because this is the only thing I know. And what I thought was interesting, though, is that next to these quotes, uh, these, these you know, narratives about the unpredictability of the future and of tomorrow, these kids often repeated to me that nothing changes. So there was a kind of opposition, you know, opposed understanding of tomorrow as the same as today. Tomorrow is the same as today. Tomorrow, nothing changes. They weren't very. They, they kept repeating these these words, and I think from my interpretation. They, they look like two competing narratives, but I think they're really talking about two different levels. I think when thinking about their own lives and their individual life prospects, they feel very precarious. They feel that there is nothing that they can, can hang on other than today. But then they, when they look at the structure of their society, that their, you know, their social space, their surroundings, and the structures of, of marginalization and exclusion that push them to the margins, they see that nothing is changing as this. They, they don't see a real willingness from their parents, their teachers, their government to help them out of this situation. And so they say nothing changes. So my interpretation is that you know, I, I think both these quotes about the unpredictability of life and the kind of obsessive repetition that nothing changes go to show a profound disenchantment with the future. And if they can't have dreams about their own lives because they don't feel allowed to and because nothing will ever change, then how can they dream about a better future for their country, right? For Colombia. So it just doesn't make sense for them. Uh, the, third, the third reason why I think these kids are um, profoundly disenchanted with the idea of peace and don't believe in it at all is the relationship to the state. And again, the state, we talk a lot about the state, you know, in international relations and traditional justice theory. The state is a very loose thing, though, and for people on the ground, it's often represented in some people or some institutions, right? And for these kids, it's two specific institutions. Well, three, the, the school that has often kicked them out, um, psychologists that are, they are often sort of, you know, they are often prescribed sort of psychological treatment for their drug addiction and and unruly behavior, and the police. So these are the three faces of the state for these kids. Um, let's start with psychologists. I mean, this is a tricky issue, and I'm not meaning to suggest that psychological help is not useful for these kids. 
But I think the rhetoric and the narrative with which it is promoted is not very helpful for them. They were often very frustrated that parents or teachers who encouraged them to go to a psychologist or told them that they always said, I'm not crazy, you know, I don't need a psychologist. And sitting in an office with a woman psychologist who was often kind of slightly older than them and of a different socioeconomic background, obviously, um, wasn't really helping them to understand something better about themselves. Um, this kid told me, they want to take me to some treatment for drugs uh, to rehabilitate me or rehabilitate me. Uh, this makes me so angry. They can't do that to me. It's my life. The social services, Elizabeth, um, came to my house and said <coughs> that I had to be protected and all. But in fact, the social services don't help at all. Kids get even worse there. Why would you need a psychologist if he doesn't take you out of the shit you're in? What do you gain with telling everything to a psychologist, all the secret things you don't tell anyone else? when the only thing he can tell you is stop doing that, <laughs> they don't help for real. Actually, they don't help at all. So I think it's quite disheartening because, uh, you know, in general, like state services, but also transitional justice initiatives and mainly the, the reparations law, uh, you know, the main sort of uh, measure that is provided for young people who were victims of violence is psychological help. And I think this quote goes to show that the way this is done is not uh, really helpful. Um, the second institution is the police. And as you might imagine, they have a very you know, sort of conflicted relationship with the police. Uh, they do drugs, right? They sell drugs, so the police is often after them. Um, and they, the police approach, although there is a very relatively progressive legislation in Colombia about the policia de juventud, so kind of youth, youth police, um, the police really approaches them in a very, so they often insult them and they are often very demeaning to them. And once we were kind of hanging out and uh, one evening and, and some of them were smoking some weed and the police came, started insulting this, these kids and me because I was with them. Um, I wasn't smoking though. Uh, and, uh, and, and they kind of insulted them, they confiscated the drugs and straight after they were very upset and one of them told me, you see what they do? The police exist to protect the law, but they abuse their power in uniform and they go beyond the law. Don't you see how they treated us? As if we were criminals. Although smoking is legal in Colombia, they always look at us as bad people. That's why we become bad, because they treat us as such. And what do you think they will do with all the drugs they confiscate? They smoke it themselves anyways, of course. So, again, this might all seem very detached, right, from transitional justice and the transition to peace, but I think my main point here is that if transitional justice is to be a state effort, as very much it's framed in Colombia, we need to think about these daily institutions. And I think very often in transitional justice, there is this tendency to think about setting up new institutions, truth commissions, special tribunals, memory, and etc., etc. But in the end, the state is declinated in these much more you know, daily and less exciting institutions, such as the police, the social services, the school, um, is something we have to think about if we are to think, if we are to change the way people think about the state, and thus, uh, you know, about their country more generally, I think. But, and I'm approaching the end, the fact that they don't really care a lot and believe in the concept of peace doesn't mean that these kids don't think that a change is necessary in their society. They didn't talk very much about it because, as I said, I don't think they really believe that anything like that is possible. But in a few instances, they did talk to me about what they would want to change. And they're, perhaps not surprisingly, they're 
um, their narratives really went in the direction of more, more social justice. Uh, and I think they were quite sophisticated. It's quite striking. This is the ambition of one of these kids in the neighborhood I, where I grew up in Medellin. There are a lot of good people who live in the street and end up on drugs. When I'm older, I want to do something to help them, like Pablo Escobar did. He built a whole neighborhood for them in Medellin. I grew up in it. So I think this is a quite nice. It shows the contrast between a very social and, I think, genuine orientation of these kids who later uh, ended up in a gang and later, when I went back a year later, was in prison, effectively. Uh, but he had a quite social sort of inclination. Uh, and at the same time, this idealization of Pablo Escobar, which amongst these kids is still very much present, at least in Medellin, as this Robin Hood uh, hero that did bad, but did a lot of good, and, um, but he's also kind of an idol, and kids have t-shirts, you know, that they wear t-shirts with his face, etc. So um, this kind of, I, I think it's interesting to see that inclinations to be, or admirations for criminals and social orientation can often go together. Um, and this other kid told me if I was in the government, the first thing I would do would be to help poor people. I wouldn't want a world, um, sorry, I would want a world where you didn't need to worry about food, shelter. If we all had the same wealth, we'd never fight. All fighting is for money. The poor becomes criminal because it wants to be the same as the rich, you know? That's the cause for which all criminals fight equality. So, Again, quite a, I think, a strong statement that should prompt us to think, and this has been said all over and over again, but I think very little applied in practice, to think of transition to peace not only in terms of negative peace, but really going back to Galton's idea of positive peace, which has at its core uh, social justice and equality and redistribution. And it's quite disheartening to see that of the many institutions and I think developments, very positive ones, that are going on in Colombia, Really, I don't think this direction of social justice is being pushed very much at all. I don't think there is the political will, and um, personally, it worries me. Um, so, in conclusion, um, what are the implications for this? Of this, I think the main and bottom line, and quite clear, is that at least for these youths, uh, transitional justice and his building hasn't so far done the job, uh, and I don't think it looks like. This is very much happening, at least for them. Um, the transformative rhetoric that is very much present, and, and you know, I'm quite supportive of it in the transitional justice documents, in the reparations law, in the uh, political declarations around the transition to peace. Uh, um, you know, that really talk about transformation and transformation of you know causes of violence and structural causes of marginalization. I don't think it's converted, at least not enough, in the lives of the young people who are most um, marginal um, because so far you know the structures of exclusion that that push them to the margins and push them to these alternative types of livelihoods have not been addressed and so they just don't see a change um, but broadly in terms of traditional justice i think two key points that i would want you to take away from this is first when we talk about inclusion of marginalized or vulnerable population in any policy including traditional justice um, we shouldn't talk about those people as all the same or as homogenous. And I think we should really strive hard for this sort of intersectional approach which appreciates intersections between you know, age, gender, uh, but also uh, class, which is very little talked about in terms of 
vulnerable groups. Uh, we rarely talk about the poor, I think, uh, because they don't have a charter of rights or something. But you know, very often it's a very defining um, characteristic of identity. And and secondly, the importance of looking beyond rhetoric of transformation and really looking at transforming, you know, things on the ground, what is being transformed and for whom. Um, and I think in this sense, it's important to think about stable, you know, the, the institutions that make up the state beyond the institutions that you might set up in a transitional justice process. How do we reform existing institutions that impact the everyday life of a lot of people, uh, like the school, uh, like social services, the police, for these kids, and, and many other institutions for many others. So this is it. Yeah.